Well, now I'd like to invite Gabe Coyle to join me up here. Gabe is the campus pastor at our downtown uh, campus. And Gabe is going to bring our message today. He's going to open Isaiah for us as we continue in our Advent series, which I'm really excited about. And, uh, you know, Gabe and I have been friends uh, for a long time. Um, too long. Too long. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but more, yeah, and we, we've worked together for a long time, and it's just been a joy, Gabe, to get to do this work together with you, not just as a colleague, but truly as a friend, mm-hmm. and uh, to have our families spend time together. We get together regularly, and to watch our kids grow up together, and Ava, and Israel, and Zion, and yeah. Yeah, and they're here today, so my wife's here. Yeah, she can wave. Sally. I know she's going to hate that I did this. <laughs> uh, there she is, and there's our new kid, Zion. Our new son, Zion, not a Zion, whatever that is. Um, and then our other two kids are downstairs. And when we were driving here, Ava's favorite thing is like, we're going, we're going, you know, to, to uh, we're going to church this morning over with Pastor Bill, you know, and so it's going to be really fun. Yeah. Uh, we're glad to be here. So Yeah. Sometimes uh, Ava calls this Lucy's church. This That's isn't exactly actually right. really Bill and Rachel's church. This is Lucy's church. So. I was trying to save you yeah. from that moment. But. <laughs> um, and, and I just want to say, so you're, and you're going to get to experience this here in just a moment, but um, Gabe really is one of the, I think, I really think he's the most creative, innovative, uh, entrepreneurial pastor that we have on our staff team uh, here at Christ. <laughs> um, no, and seriously, Gary's putting money here. Uh, but but we were just together at a campus pastor planning retreat, and there's just so many times during that retreat where I thought, man, like I'm so glad Gabe is on our team because of the insight that he brings, the innovation that he brings. He's a gifted communicator. Um, He's a really caring shepherd of people, um, but also just, you know, I couldn't just tell you how much I love him. He's also a, a total goofball. So uh, this was um, a picture of me and Gabe at the beginning of the downtown campus. So maybe not all of you know this, but I actually started the downtown campus, and then Gabe joined me as a pastoral resident, and so this was one of the first services. Uh, so as you hear Gabe, as you hear him thoughtfully, insightfully bringing the word, just also remember he's a total goofball, um, and, and he, you, you've never outgrown that. No, and I'm so, I won't. I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. So um, yeah, so before Gabe uh, opens the word for us this morning, I asked him to give us a little bit of an update on the downtown campus space. You know, if you've been with us over the last couple months, we've been talking about the needs at Shawnee Mission in downtown. So I want Gabe to tell us the latest on the space. Then he's going to read scripture for us and then open God's word. So Gabe, I'm so glad you're here. Let's give him a round of applause. Just welcome him here with us. It's always that funny, like, love you, dude. Like you're just trying to grin it out when you're giving the hug. Hey, but in all seriousness, uh, Bill, it's a, it's a true treat to be here, and it's, it's a great honor to be here. I've never been here on a Sunday morning, so I've been here for other things, and thank you so much for your warm hospitality. Bill is a phenomenal pastor, and I've had the privilege of learning from you and with you for the past seven years, so thanks for all that you've done in terms of speaking into my life and making me a better human being. Uh, Bill is just a compassionate and thoughtful leader, so thanks for, thanks for inviting me here. Um, so yeah, let me give you a little update over... I think it was about five weeks ago, we started a series around bold faith. And we were able to give you some details about the Shawnee Mission space, um, but we weren't quite as far along with the downtown space. Well, today, after about 18 months of searching, I can give you a little more uh, specificity, which we're really excited about. So the new space that we're looking towards, uh, we currently have not only an agreement on price now, this was a, a shock, an agreement on price, but a contract pending congregational approval and some of our due process. It's located at 208 West 19th Street. Just to give you some framework there, that's about 0.2 or 0.3 
miles away from our current location um, at 1708 Baltimore, where the current downtown campus is. And it has 20,000 square feet, 14,000 on the first floor, 6,000 on the second Plenty of opportunity for, for growth. If, if you didn't know, our children's ministry have been walking to a different building. They were meeting in a tent uh, this summer. Now they're walking to a different building. And uh, we have some folks who can't quite even make it to the restroom because we have so many chairs because of wheelchair and excess and things like that. So um, really excited about the opportunities ahead of us. And this 20,000 square feet space is not only the opportunity for just room on Sunday morning, but throughout the week, whether it be starting a potential preschool. We're exploring every opportunity there to do something like that, opening up not only an arts gallery, but maybe artist studios and collaborating with business entrepreneurs in downtown in a really creative way, we hope. So more coming on that in the future. But this is a, a truly exciting time. The, the price, as we try to assess different rental options um, over against purchase, this particular space is kind of like a unicorn. So I use that because I've got a young daughter and you never think unicorns exist until you see one, um, as my daughter tells me. Um, and so this space, it's a really unique design um, in that we can purchase and do minimal renovations and get in there, not only in the short term, but in the long term as well, cheaper than we could renting significantly less space downtown. So truly excited. The price point that we're looking at, that we've come to an agreement with the seller, is $2.3 million um, to purchase this space in downtown in the Crossroads neighborhood. And as exciting as all that is, it's extraordinarily daunting, isn't it? Um, and Bill's going to give you more information about that. So come to the congregational meeting tonight. Um, and while we're looking at something really scary in the face, I think we need to hear a passage about how we navigate fear. So would you please stand as we read Isaiah 41. Verses 1 through 10. And today's passage, if you are using a community Bible, is found on page number 601. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
Every year, uh, Allie, my wife, and, and our kids, we wait in a really long line to see Santa at Union Station. And I want to be clear, we're Christians. We know it's all about sweet baby Jesus. But we got to get that photo of the kids with Santa for the grandparents. Am I right? And, and for the Coyle family, it's especially terrible. I don't, I, I don't know why we do this. It always, it always goes down like this. When our kids see Santa up close and personal, they lose their minds. I mean, naturally, children are scared of certain characters this time of year, like the Grinch. He's green. He's evil. Jim Carrey's version is straight up maniacal, right? Um, but Santa, and, and this is the way it always goes, like, we, we start heading, we're in the line, and we're all really excited. Ava's telling me what she's going to ask Santa for. Israel's pretty pumped. Zion's a new addition, so we'll see what he does. Um, but we're all really excited in the line, and then suddenly we get up and close to Santa. And it's utter terror. I mean, look at their faces here. Like, they will not. We tried everything we could to get them close, and then they, they just freak out. We can't get them close at all. If you circle their faces there, Israel... Looks like we're about to feed him to the wolves and Ava's already contemplating moving out. Like, that's the way it always goes. And, and then there's the most deflating moment as a parent. You've waited over an hour to see Santa and now you're carrying your children screaming past other parents with their children saying, I want to go home. I don't like Santa. I don't like Santa. I don't like Santa. To which you look at the other parents and say, it's going to be fine, you know? But can you blame kids? Have you thought about Santa? I mean, have you thought about this? There's some guy who breaks into your home every year, eats some of your food, and does it in this Victorian reenactment garb. It's straight up, it's straight up creepy. So I, I can resonate and to totally understand why my kids are utterly terrified with Santa up close and personal. And I want you to do something for me. I want you to think about some of those fears you had as a child. You may look back on them and think they're irrational now, but they felt so real in the moment. And then what happens? You, you grow up. And the strangest thing happens. Those fears, they don't completely disappear. They just grow up with you. And they seem like they're bigger today than they've ever been. And here's why. This is so important. We never outgrow fear because the real world is just as terrifying as what our imaginations can work up. Unforeseen natural disasters can come in and take away everything you've worked your life for. Senseless violence can take the lives of those we deeply love. Hidden sickness can come out of nowhere and rob us of joy. And then there are bees. Like, okay, so just a little side note. Um, I'm terrified of bees. Um, there's something about bees that not even scientists can crack, okay? I don't know if you know this about bees, but their bodies are way too big and their wings are way too small for them to logically fly. So nobody in the scientific world really knows how bees fly. My theory, witchcraft, okay? Uh, well, just kidding about the witchcraft. I know as a visiting pastor, you're not supposed to do that, but there it is. Um, but I am seriously terrified of bees. It's another story for another day. But uh, no matter who you are, no matter what you're afraid of, no matter how old you are, no matter where you grew up, no matter where you live, the enduring question for human beings is how do we live without fear in a genuinely terrifying world? How do we live without fear in a terrifying world? 
What's God's answer? We heard it read for us this morning in Isaiah 41. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Don't be afraid because, this, this, this causal key there in the Hebrew, don't be afraid because I'm with you. And I want to be very clear what God is not saying here in this passage. God is not saying, hey, that we're now to live without what other biblical writers have termed the fear of the Lord. And if that's new news to you, that's also another story and another sermon for another day. But what I want you to understand right when we step into this passage is that the biblical writers are not engaging in some sort of double speak where they're saying one thing out of the side of their mouth and saying another here's what God is saying in this passage he's saying everything that you're afraid of out there every single thing that you see that you're terrified about you don't have to be afraid of and the only reason you can have this buoyed confidence is because I am with you and what's our response when we hear that when you hear this fear not for I am with you. Way more often than not, it goes something like this. Yeah, still terrified. Um, if we're honest with ourselves, if we, if we begin to really process the deep emotions that are going on in our soul, and even how we go about living our lives. And, and I began to wonder, you know, why is that the case? Why is it that when we hear these words, they don't land with the intended comfort that God is seeking to bring to us in our moments of utter fear. I think part of the reason, and maybe we jump here most often, part of the reason is because we genuinely do not believe that God is with us. And that's part of the reason, for sure. But the other part of the reason, and I think way more often the reason, that these words don't come with the intended comfort that God longs to communicate to you and to I, to, to me, is because we don't know whom this God that is with us. We don't actually know who he is. Such that when he says, I'm with you, it can feel a bit daunting as to, you know, who indeed are you when you say you're, you're with me? God says, hey, in a terrifying world, come find your safety, your security in me. And over this past Advent season, we've been talking about how God's open arms are inviting you and I to come home to him. But then when we finally get there, it can feel like we're living with a stranger, which is why, and this is really important, when you're reading your Bibles, look for this, okay? Here's a little homework assignment. Next time you look in your Bible and you see that God says, fear not, and gives the reason because I am with you, in the same breath, God then always goes about reminding us who indeed he is. A.W. Tozer, um, one of the most prominent theologians in the Western Hemisphere of the Christian faith in the 20th century, brilliantly noticed that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man or woman is not what he or she at a given time may say or do, but what he or she in his or her deep heart conceives God to be like. So this morning, what we're going to do is to grow in a better informed understanding, a more biblically informed understanding of who this God who is with us actually is. And we have a marvelous gift here in Isaiah 41 because God himself is describing himself through the prophet Isaiah. And so if you're a note taker, right, you've been waiting for this moment. Um, here's how we're going to organize our thoughts. Th we're going to look at three crucial characteristics 
about this God who is with us that we need to remember, that we need to hold on to, that we need to put deep within the recesses of our heart if we're ever to overcome fear and be at home with God again. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41, page 601 in your community Bibles there on the front pew. Isaiah, just to kind of recap, was a prophet from about 740 B.C. to 681 B.C. And over those 60 years, Isaiah watched as the northern segment of the nation of Israel slowly disintegrated and then was utterly destroyed in 722 B.C. by the hands of the nation of Assyria. Now the southern segment of the nation of Israel, often called Judah or the kingdom of Judah, isn't destroyed until 586 B.C. That's roughly 100 years, roughly, after Isaiah's death. This is where things start to get interesting for 21st century modern Christian people. God granted Isaiah the prophet a vision to see what was to come after Isaiah died. God granted Isaiah a vision of the fall of Judah by the hands of Babylon, even though it was to take place a hundred years after his death. And God does this quite frequently through the prophets in the Old Testament and specifically in Isaiah. Another case in point, if you go to Isaiah 44, verse 28, God names one conqueror by name. His name is Cyrus the Great. And he says, even after Judah and the, the, the residents of Jerusalem are going to be exiled to Babylon. There's going to be another conqueror who comes and he's going to squash Babylon and he's going to bring my people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. Josephus, first century historian in, uh, in his Jewish antiquities, actually writes of an episode where Cyrus later reads of this prophecy, which was written before he was born, is so astounded that it's actually speaking of him that he hurries to fulfill the prophecy and sends the Jews back. I mean, it's truly astounding again and again and again how God is working beyond our framework. And so when we come to Isaiah 41, it's in this broader context, in this section of Isaiah, where God is speaking through Isaiah to men, women, and children who will be exiled over a hundred years after his death. That's the audience. And the reason God wants these exiles to know that God knew all of this before, a hundred years before it all took place, was to know that, 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 that they would know that their destruction, their pain, their heartache did not surprise God. When everybody's asking, where did this conqueror come from? Who's guiding history? We see this in verses 2 through 4, right? All these questions. Who's the one who's navigating all of this? God makes it abundantly clear. Look with me again. At the end of verse 4, he says, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. I'm the one who's behind all of this. I'm the one who's over all of this. To really feel the weight of that passage, fast forward a hundred years from when these words were initially written. Say you're a Jewish person and you're in exile in Babylon. You have now these memories of Jerusalem being destroyed. And you may not be a slave yourself, but you're anything but free. And while you're either gathered together with other Israelites or you just remember the words of Isaiah, suddenly it clicks. Isaiah foretold this would happen. And it hits you. Isaiah was right, which means God 
knew this all along. And despite how crazy your world may feel, despite your lack of control of everything that's around you, you can finally rest in what God wanted you to know. And what we as 21st century Christians can have the opportunity to know in retrospect. And here's the first crucial characteristic of our God who's with us. The first crucial characteristic is that God never loses control. Never. Do you know what that means? That means no matter what does come into your life that you did not want, no matter what does not come into your life that you really do want, God never loses control. Now that isn't to say that God is the author of evil or is the catalyst for every bit of suffering that you and I experience. That's not the the story or the, the, the picture of the God that we see of Scripture. But instead, the unbelievable hope we have is that when our suffering feels insurmountable, we can hold fast that God hasn't lost control of the world around us. That God, who is perfect and just, is orchestrating his good purposes throughout history despite the brokenness of the world and will bring them to completion in the end in ways that we can only begin to fathom with our limited perspective. God never loses control. So of what are you afraid? What keeps you up at night? Fear not, for this God is with you. Now we can't, we can't stop there because in the midst of the grandiose nature of who God is, if we just talk about God being over all of history, he can feel so transcendent, so far above and beyond us that he doesn't indeed feel like he's with us. Which is why I'm so grateful that he doesn't let us just stay in the transcendent, but he guides us back down to the common ground of earth. In Isaiah 41, verse 8, God actually recounts the history of a specific people that he's working specifically through. And he he does this in reverse order. In Isaiah 41, verse 8, he says, I chose Israel, who are the offspring of Jacob, whom I chose over Esau, who's the offspring of Abraham, my friend. It's covenantal language, this promised language where God had made a promise to Abraham in the midst of this broken world that he was going to, through Abraham's offspring, despite how Abraham's offspring react or act, was going to bring a blessing to the world over and begin this restoration project the way that he's designed the world to be. And then it comes to a climax to my favorite passage in all of Isaiah, definitely my favorite verse in Isaiah 41, And it's in verse 10. We read, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. And then in the Hebrew, there's an intensification that's not abundantly clear in our English translation. It's this word, off, in the Hebrew that raises the stakes each time. And so you'll see it in this translation on the screen that says, Surely, where God says, I will strengthen you. Surely, I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or I love the way another translation ends verse 10 by saying, I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Do you see this rising intensification where God says, look, don't be afraid because I'm with you. 
And when you feel like you don't have the strength, well, then I'm going to go work through you to strengthen you. And when you feel like that's not even enough, even more than that, I'm going to come alongside of you and I'm going to help you. And when you feel like you can't take one more step, I'm just going to hold on to you. And when humanity meets its breaking point, God's presence and provision rises to meet us in that very moment. You see, God isn't just over history. He also has his hand on each and every one of our lives. Which is why we can't just understand that God never loses control. The second crucial characteristic of this God who's with us is to know that God never lets us go. All the way back in Genesis, at the dawn of history, he created a garden where he could walk with his people, be with his people, and be known by his people, and to embrace his people. And that is the the trajectory towards the end of the story in Revelation, where finally there will be no more sun, no more moon, but God will be with his people, and he will light their paths, and we will be with him, and we will finally know him as he fully is and be fully known. What a gift. This is what God has been working towards. God never lets us go. And when we forget this, we become like the idolaters of old that we see in verse 7 where they're busying their hands. They actually get super busy. They're trying to work really hard to bolster the works of their hands. They start making these idols in their own image rather than in the reality and understanding who the true God is. And so we can do that too. We can get super busy bolstering up all these things that we're doing to somehow try to assuage our fear as if it's our strength, as if it's our energy that's going to ultimately calm the deepest fears of our heart. But it doesn't work. They become exhausted And utterly terrified worse than before. But if we remember who the true God is, that he's the one who never loses control, that he's the one who never lets us go, then our imaginations are open to only what God can do. And what's so brilliant is is the picture that God paints as you continue through Isaiah 41, where God basically says he's going to use a worm to plow mountains. This little fragile worm that can be extinguished with one step of the foot is going to be used to plow the strongest structures we know in the natural world. Look with me, Isaiah 41, verses, beginning in verse 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob. So the rest of the world looks on at Israel as nothing, as a small insignificant people. You men of Israel, I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. God doesn't need anyone in this room to be big stuff to do big stuff in the world. Far more often than not, we just are putting ourselves at the mercy of God's strength. And he's there with arms wide open, willing to give liberally his strength, his help for those who seek him. So if God's never going to let us go, think about what's your worst nightmare? And maybe for some of you, your worst nightmare isn't what you experience when you close your eyes and go to sleep at night. Maybe your worst nightmare is when you open your eyes and you go to work on Monday. 
Maybe for some of you, it's this feeling that you're not going to have enough this pay period. Not only to pay your bills, but to provide gifts for the people you love. Maybe for some of you, it's this nagging sense of inadequacy that you're never going to be enough for anyone. And that you're not only going to be lonely, but especially during the holiday season, it can feel like a condemnation that you'll forever feel lonely and be alone. Fear not, for this God is with you. A God who never loses control and a God who never lets us go. Now there's one more crucial characteristic about this God who's with us. That's one of my favorites um, because it's so hopeful. And it, it begins to get unpacked here in verse 17. Look on with me. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst. Pause there for just a moment. Notice that this is a when statement, not an if statement. It's not if the poor and needy are thirsty and looking for something and they can't find it anywhere. It's when, when this happens. And I know there are different gradations of poverty. There's poverty in the spirit. There's financial poverty. There's social poverty. But we all as human beings have had that moment where we've longed for something. We felt like we needed something and we could not find the resources to meet that need. Well, in that moment, when you feel like you've been in the desert for so long that your tongue is parched and it's sticking to the roof of your mouth and you can't find anything and you may not be dead, but you can see death from where you're standing and the only resource you have left you feel like is God and you've been in this waiting period, what should we expect? Let's see what God tells us to expect. Keep reading in verse 17. We read, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. If you feel like you've been in the desert for a while, you need to hear this third crucial characteristic of this God who's with us, and it's that God never lets suffering be the final word. Living in a broken world, knowing that God is with us doesn't mean he insulates all pain from us. But what we can have comfort in, what we can have hope in, is knowing that for those who are God's, Suffering, death, and destruction will not be our final word. And for some of you, you feel like you've been in the desert not just for days or weeks or months, but maybe decades. Hear this. He will answer. And how do we know? Look back to the text, verse 20. This word that there has this purpose statement to it, in order that. That they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. God is zealous for His glory and His brilliance shines best after the darkest of nights. And He is banking His glory and promising us that His Son, the Son will rise again on a home yet. 
to be seen. He's planting trees. He's putting down roots. And he will one day turn that desert back into the ancient garden of Eden that our hearts long for, where he walks with us and we are known by him and know him fully. He is making a home where he will no longer have to tell, no longer have to tell his children, fear not again. He's prophesied this to people in exile. And they got a foretaste of it in history when they began to come back to the promised land. But we have a better, we have a better word even spoken still in the gospel about Jesus the Christ. For at just the right time, the God who is with us sent his son to be one of us. And then he went to the cross to die for us. And then three days later, he rose again before us. And then he was on the earth for 40 days where people touched him, talked with him, had breakfast with him on the beach. It's a pretty good deal. And then ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven ahead of us. But he didn't abandon us. Instead, he sent his Holy Spirit not just to be with us, but all oh, the joy of knowing him and dwelling within us as a foretaste of what he will do this world over. God never lets suffering be the final word for those who are his. For those who trust in Jesus the Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Jesus is the brilliant proof to that point. So, so why are you holding back? What are you holding back from embracing Jesus fully and what he longs to give you? Why are you holding back from taking that step of obedience that Jesus is beckoning you to? It may look like a desert right now, but he'll turn it into a garden one day. God never lets suffering have the final word for his own. Fear not, for this God is with you. Now, one person in my life um, who's exemplified this life, a life unshaken by fear, is my mom, Heather. Um, there she is up there, uh, sweetheart. Uh, she, uh, she showed me throughout, throughout my early years, even just this picture, sometimes much more is caught than taught, right? What this, this God with us is like. And she continues to teach me what this God with us is like. Um, despite an unfaithful husband, my dad, and a really brutal divorce um, where she was financially insecure, abandoned, wrestled with feelings of betrayal and loneliness. I mean, I remember so many days coming in um, as a teenager and finding my mom weep over her Bible, holding on to the promises and the presence of God. When we felt really weak, God in her was really strong. And there was one Sunday we were going to church. Um, I didn't really have the option. If I didn't want to go, we went anyway. That's the way it worked in our family. And it was one of those Sundays. We were on our way to church, and I just wanted our home to be whole again. I wanted my dad to come back and for us to have a normal family. And I just remember thinking, you know, and I asked my mom, I said, why, does our li why do our lives have to be like this? And, and she was so brilliant. She saw this crack in the adolescent armor where I was finally, like, really reaching out for help. And she said, you know, Gabe, our lives more often than not, when we look at them, are like the backside of an embroidery. Um, 
So we had these in our house growing up. Did you, have you ever seen these, uh, these things? You know, it's basically a, a piece of fabric where you would design, you know, this or sew this brilliant pattern on the front. But on the back side, it was a mesh and, and mess of colors and, and strings. It looked like it was chaotic and haphazard. And my mom said, our life, often when we look at it, looks like it's the backside of that embroidery. It doesn't seem to make sense. There's a lot of questions as to what on earth is happening here. But every now and then, God empowers us. He enables us to kind of look on the other side, to get a glimpse of what's on the other side of the embroidery. And it's beautiful. You begin to see what he's doing. You begin to see how he's weaving all these seemingly chaotic moments together to make a beautiful picture. And Gabe, I I don't understand why all of this had to, to happen. There are plenty of questions I have. There are plenty of things I wish didn't happen. I wish your dad was back. But I know it's going to be beautiful because I know who holds the embroidery of our lives in his hands. And he's holding on to us. Now, there's been a lot of redemption in my mom's life um, since those early years. Um, My mom is remarried. She met a really godly guy in the church choir. So there's always that avenue for some. Um, and, we are, uh, and we are blended and splendid by the grace of God. Um, and yet I, I can't tell you how many times I go back to that embroidery analogy. Because not everybody's story experiences that taste of redemption this side of Christ's return. Sometime that moment isn't until Jesus comes back and finally makes us And there's always, always more to that redemption and and restoration that is to come when Jesus indeed does come back. Now, interesting side note, I found out that Corey Ten Boom, a famous Christian who helped so many Jews get out of Nazi Germany, also used this embroidery analogy when she was describing the gospel. But I'm pretty sure she got it from my mom, you know, (laughs) as I did some fact-finding. But I want you to think about your own life this morning. What about you? Where... Where do you need the comforting presence of the true God in your life? Where do you need to remember this God is with us? Maybe you're here today and you're tempted to believe that God in some area of your life has lost control. That he's unaware or or somehow his hands are tied. Maybe for some in here you feel like God has let you down. Which is another way of saying God has let you go. And maybe for some, suffering has been a part of your story for so long. You feel like you're going to die in the desert. And that that will be your final word over your life. Wherever that is for you, I want to challenge each and every one of us this Christmas season. And here it is. I want you, whenever you see the manger scene, which, which is everywhere. It's like even in Costco, except it's 30 feet tall and it's like half price or something, you know. Manger scenes are everywhere. But whenever you see one, I want you to use that as a a personal opportunity to stop and remember. A beautiful picture of God come to earth. Stop and remember Emmanuel. Imagine God over all of history, orchestrated all of history. That at just the right time, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the one that Isaiah has been ultimately pointing to all along, finally became human. And brought us salvation to the nth degree. And will one day make the world right again. 
So wherever you're wrestling with fear, look at the manger with fresh eyes. Remembering who this God that is with us actually is. And he is someone who is standing there with you, staring your fears in the face, saying, I will never lose control. I will never let you go. I will never, ever let suffering have the final word. Fear not, for I am with you. Let's pray. God, I need those words. I need you. We need you. Help us to remember who it is you are. In the midst of so many misperceptions and misconstrued pictures, may your word inform our imagination. Because only then when we hear the call to to fear not because you're with us will we actually be able to be comforted. And so God may, in the midst of so many fears, may we rest in you by the power of your spirit who's working within us and with the beauty of the gospel and the death and resurrection of Jesus behind us. May we stand with greater confidence in who you are and whose we are. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.